Good evening, church. Uh, my name's Lachlan, one of the pastors here. Great to be with you this Mother's Day. I didn't fly my mother over from Australia, unfortunately, but it's good to see many mothers amongst us. I don't know if any have flown in from other parts of the country to be here, but wonderful to be with you this Mother's Day. I love my mum. Uh, very appreciative of all that she has taught me and trained me in over the years. Uh, my wife will tell you many of the things that I am like my mum in. Most of them I'm happy with. Uh, so she has been a big influence in me down through my life. Uh, particularly, both her and dad uh, raised me to know and love Jesus, and I cannot be more thankful for them doing that for me. Uh, so this day, I'll, I'm going to give her a call on the way home and say thanks to her. Now, being a son, I've caused mum not always so much joy, uh, but a fair share of concern and worry as well. If you're a son or a daughter, perhaps likewise, you've caused your parents and your mother to have some worries. One of the things that my mum did worry about with me uh, was when I got my license. Uh, some of you will have your driver's licenses now. Some are still working on that milestone. Uh, when you're young and you get your license, you're not always the safest driver. So let's face it, my mum's worries were somewhat well-founded. And there was a particular time when I was driving into church one evening. Uh, it was about four o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, where we were at for church at that time, there was a driveway coming into church. And just before the drive, it was like the last little turn before you got there. It was a beautiful S-bend. A big sweeping curve to the left and then another 90 degree turn to the right. So much fun. Uh, being the young driver that I was, you'd try to push the speed and see how fast you could make it around the S-Bend, feel the inertia as you swung in the car. Anyway, uh, I've repented of my bad driving ways. You'll be pleased to know I'm a safe driver now. Uh, this particular day as I'm driving into church, I was aiming to get there early to play some soccer with friends. Uh, I think, I don't know, it'd been raining a couple of days before. Perhaps the roads weren't looking too bad though. But there's some trees that hang over this particular patch of the road. Anyway, all I knew is that I'm coming around, turning left, and everything's all good, going on a good little clip. And then I turn to the right, and before I know it, I've lost control of the car, and I've kind of gone too far to the right, and I'm over on the wrong side of the road. I didn't really know what to do in this situation, so I made the wrong decision to put my foot on the brake and try to correct, and I overcorrected. Uh, next thing I know, I'm off the road, I've jumped over a little ditch, and there's a tree about a foot to the left of my car, another tree about a foot to the right of my car, and I'm looking up at a fence and a goat just kind of munching away on some grass, <laughs> looking at me with amused little beady eyes, judging me. I'm like, oh man, very thankful that I survived. I mean, those trees are very close. Uh, that's the kind of thing that would cause my mum worry, and it, it made me reflect. <laughs> I, I know, re- reasonable worry. Uh, but I reflected on this, I don't know what your driving is like, but don't you reckon there'd be less car accidents if roads were just straight? You know, none of those corners that invite you to push the speed or the corners that you can't quite see around. We should just invent cities with straight roads. Uh, The geographies amongst us would tell me why that doesn't work, but that's my thought. And I reckon we'd love it if life was the same way. If life was just a straight line from one blessing to the next blessing from one plan being fulfilled to the next plan being fulfilled, from one good moment to the next good moment. But life's not like that, is it? Life is full of twists and turns. Things we can't always see up ahead, uncertainty about the future. Things not always going the way that we plan. And so in life, we experience moments, and sometimes they go on for years, moments of pain and suffering. The reality of life is not something that you have to leave at the door as you come into church. 
You don't have to come in and kind of pretend that everything's going really well and put on the, the Facebook facade that just says, hey, life's beautiful. Now, as we continue in Genesis tonight, we're going to meet three people for whom life is going through twists and turns. People who are feeling the pain of life. We're going to meet in Genesis 15 and 16 a man who is looking ahead at the future and he's feeling scared, he is uncertain. We'll meet a woman who is grieving because she's infertile and heading towards the end of life. We'll meet another woman, a young servant girl who suffers as a victim of use and abuse. I wonder if you tonight resonate with any of those stories. Fear of the future. Grief at hopes that have been unmet. Suffering under use and abuse. Into each of these stories, God speaks. So don't leave your struggles at the door tonight. Bring them in and hear what God has to say. Hear from the God who sees you. The God who hears you. The God who is committed to his promises to bless you. Let me pray that we would see God tonight. Father, thank you that you don't gloss over the messiness of life. You're not the God of our pristine, manicured social media feeds. You're the God of people who are terrified and ashamed that life is messy. You're our God. And we ask that tonight you would comfort us. And that you would grow our trust in you so that we might stake our lives on your promises. In Jesus' name, amen. We would have received on your way in an outline. There's some space in there to take notes this evening. Uh, That might help you to stay on track as we cover these two chapters. Up on the screen, you'll see the the different scenes that we're going to cover throughout uh, tonight's talk. There'll be four different scenes that we'll see. Now, each of these scenes could be a sermon in their own right. Uh, there's so much depth and goodness in here to, be, to explore. Uh, we don't have time to go into all of those details, but I hope this will just be the start of the conversation for you with these chapters, that as we press in and meet some of these characters, you'll continue chatting about it over supper, over dinner, in your connect groups through the week, on Facebook as you chat with one another. Uh, if there's any questions that come up from tonight, you've got the connect cards there. Write your questions down and we'll get in touch. Uh, don't let Sunday be the only time you're engaging with God's Word here. Let's keep the conversation going. We're going to work through these four different scenes from Genesis 15 to 16. Uh, But first we need to kind of come up to speed. We need the intro to the story, the previously in Genesis bit at the start of the TV show. Uh, So last Sunday when we kicked off our series in Genesis, uh, this is the first book of the Bible, the the book of origins or beginnings. And we got underway last week in chapter 12, where we learned that God has a plan to bring blessing back into his cursed world. That plan was to bless one particular family. And so we met last week Abram. And God promised this man, Abram, three things. Hopefully you can remember them. Part of me wants to interact and see if you do remember them, but I'll, I'll give you a free one tonight. Uh, the three promises that God made to Abram, first, that he would become a great nation. That is, he was going to have lots of kids and they'd become powerful on the earth. Uh, second, these descendants, this offspring, would inherit a particular land. Uh, And thirdly, through these offspring, Abram's family would become a blessing for the whole earth. These were three huge promises to a 75-year-old man. He'd have descendants who would inherit a land and be a blessing to the whole world. Now, to his credit, Abram trusted God. 
He didn't look at his old and failing body. He believed that God could come through on these promises. And so he obeyed God. He left his homeland and he set out on the journey to this land that God had promised. Now, the text doesn't tell us, but I can imagine at this point that Abram perhaps imagined these promises would come true quickly and simply. Maybe that night after talking to God, he went and slept with his wife, Sarah, and thought, wonderful, she's going to conceive tonight. In nine months' time, little Abram's going to be running around and play with him. And uh, in, in 20 years' time, perhaps there'll be a grandchild and we'll start to take over the land slowly but surely. Perhaps that's what Abram would have imagined. But between last week's passage in chapter 12 and this week in chapter 15, the road has not been straight at all. And we're not sure exactly how long has been taken place between these chapters. The next time we hear a time indicator is at the start of chapter 16. At that point, it's been 10 years since Abram received the promises. So when we hit chapter 15, it's somewhere between 1 and 10 years going on. And in that time, there's been a severe famine in the land. Uh, The promised land, there was no food to eat. Abram had to leave there and head down to Egypt, away from the promised land. Uh, When he gets to Egypt, he tries to pass off his wife as his sister, Uh, It's pretty hard to fulfill the promise for descendants when you're pretending that your wife is your sister. Uh, So that promise isn't looking likely. And then after that, Abram, the the famine ends, Abram gets back to the land. His nephew Lot, uh, he gets captured as a prisoner of war. And Abram has to rally some troops and go out to war and defeat five other kings that have banded together. Uh, he, He ends up defeating them. And then he gets offered some of the spoils of war, lots of wealth. And he turns it down. He says, no, no, I don't want to give you guys a reason to say that you were the ones that made me rich. God's promised me riches. I'm going to wait and trust on God. There's been a a rocky journey from chapter 12 through to chapter 15. That's why we get to chapter 15 and we find that Abram is scared. So you have a look at scene one. We start in Genesis 15, verse one. Do have your Bible open there so that you can follow along with the story. Genesis 15, verse one. After these events, and that is just after Abram has turned down this stack of wealth that the victory spoils from war, after these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Don't be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. See, Abram would be feeling like the parent who just turned down a huge pay rise that would have paid for a deposit on a house in Auckland. Uh, Or he's like the international student who's turned up in a new country and discovered that, hey, these local students are actually pretty smart. I might have a hard time beating them all at university. It's probably not the experience when you come to Auckland, but I don't don't know. I don't don't know what it's been like for you. But he's come in and, and he's feeling scared at this point. He's looking ahead at a future that is uncertain. He's just witnessed firsthand the power of the people living in the land that God had promised. He's seen the wealth that's available in this land and he's turned it down. He said, no, I don't want that. And God speaks into Abraham's fear, into his uncertainty. He says, don't be afraid. God says, I'm looking out for you, Abram. I'm your shield. I'll protect you. I'm still on track to bring about these promises. I will bring you a very great reward. Now, this wasn't enough to calm Abram down. In verse 2, he unloads his uncertainty on God. It's kind of phrased as a question in there, but it's not really a question that Abram's asking for an answer. He's he's accusing God, isn't he? Verse 2. Lord God, Abram said, what can you give me since I'm childless? 
And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. Before God can reply, Abram goes on in verse 3. Look, you've given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house will be my heir. Abram here, things have taken longer than he expected. Whatever wealth he accumulates, it's meaningless to him if he doesn't have a child that he can pass it on to, someone to inherit from him. And notice the love and the patience and the kindness of God in verse 4. Abram's just accused God of not coming through on his promises. God could pull out the stick and just beat Abram around and go, dude, shut up. But it's not the way God responds. Verse 4, this one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. Gently and patiently, God tells Abram the promise has not been derailed. God restates his promise to Abraham. You will have offspring and they will be a great nation. God takes Abram outside. It's night time and, and he points Abram up to the night sky. It's not like going out there tonight and looking up at Auckland's night sky where you might see one or two stars. Abram's out in a place where there's no electricity around. Perhaps you've been on holidays somewhere like that, been on a camping trip. There's no electricity for miles. And you look up at the night sky and there's just stars everywhere. It's a blanket of stars. You can make out the shape of the Milky Way, a bit of a column down the center. There's stars everywhere. And God points Abram up to that and says, that's how many offspring you will have. God is committed to his promises. He's not like us who sometimes flippantly make a promise or an appointment and then forget that we've made it. God's not on Facebook with a maybe button. If he says yes, he says yes. If he says no, he says no. He's not like us. God's not human that he would break his promises. If God has said it, he will do it. And this word of comfort to Abraham well, have a look at how Abram responds in verse 6. It's a simple response, but a vital response. Abram believed the Lord. Abram believed the Lord. And this is a statement not just about Abram's response in this moment, but about Abram's determined commitment. From this point on in life, he will be a person who believes God. That is, he will take God at his word, he will trust God to fulfill his promises. And he will stake his life on God fulfilling his promises. A trust like this, well, this is the right way that we are to relate to God. This is the way God made us as humans to be, to rely on him, to trust him for guidance and provision, to depend on him. And so in verse 6, when Abram believes the Lord, God does something remarkable. Abram believes the Lord and God credited it to Abraham as righteousness. That phrase might not mean much to you straight away. We don't use those words necessarily in everyday language. Righteousness is the state of being right with God, being in right relationship with God, being innocent with regards to God. And God sees Abram's trust here. And God declares, that's it. That's what I'm after. That's right relationship with me. We're good now, now that you trust me. And we need to realize at this point, Abram's not a perfect guy. He's a sinner like the rest of us. I just told you that he passed off his wife as his sister so that he'd stay out of trouble. That's not a good thing to do. Uh, It's not something that he's praised for. In chapter 16, he watches on uncaringly as someone gets abused who should be under his care. So by no means is Abram a perfect guy. 
but he trusts God. And God says, well, okay, I'll consider you as innocent. Now, this moment in Genesis 15, this is a scene that has monumental significance down to today. Uh, The Apostle Paul looks back at it and picks up on it in Romans 4, which Angela read for us earlier. So keep a finger or a bookmark there in Genesis, but flick over to Romans chapter 4. I'm going to pick it up at verse 1. Romans 4, verse 1. What then can we say that Abraham, our physical ancestor, has found? If Abraham was justified, notice justified is the same kind of word as righteous that we saw in Genesis 15. It could equally be translated as righteousified, except that that's not an English word. But we can bring it in if you want it. Righteousified, declared to be righteous. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to brag about but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And here's our verse from Genesis 15. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. And Paul here pulls in an illustration to help us understand his point. Now to the one who works, pay is not considered as a gift, but as something owed. Now some of you here tonight, you are working. Others are looking ahead to a time of work. If you're a worker and you get to the end of the week or the fortnight or the month, whatever your pay cycle is, and your pay comes through, you don't go to the boss at that point and go, oh, thank you so much. Oh, that is so generous of you to pay me. No, no, the the work is meant to be this relationship where you work and you get paid for it. You've earned your wage. You've worked hard to deserve that wage. A gift is something entirely different. But many, many people come to God as if it's a working relationship with him as if God owes them heaven, as if they've earned their right relationship with him. Now, the list of things that people bring is different. They might say, oh, God, I've been a good person. God, I've given plenty to charity. I've looked out for my neighbors. I've not often been rude. I've raised my children to be good citizens. I've even been baptized. I've evangelized. I don't know what might be on your list, your resume of things that you're thinking will please God and somehow earn you a right relationship with him. But please see tonight that God isn't interested in you earning your way with him. He's not interested in people working to deserve heaven. There's nothing that we could do to deserve heaven. That's the attitude that Paul's critiquing here in Romans 4. This attitude of thinking that we can earn our way before God. Now what's God after? We'll have a look at verse 5. To the one who does not work, but believes on him who declares the ungodly to be righteous, his faith is credited for righteousness. To the one who does not work, not seeking to earn anything from God, but believes that God declares the ungodly to be righteous. Just like he declared Abram, that ungodly sinner, to be righteous. If you believe that, if you believe that God is like that, that God is the God who declares ungodly people to be innocent, then God will credit you with righteousness. That is what God is after. Not people who work for him and think they deserve their pay, but people who recognize that they're ungodly. People who trust his promise to treat them graciously. Now, this is the promise of God that matters most to us today. 
I talked through the three promises that God made to Abraham, but God hasn't promised you personally that you will have offspring that will become a great nation. God hasn't promised you a particular parcel of land that your descendants will inherit. We're the recipients of the blessing of God that has come through Abram to the whole world. The promise that God has promised for us is this blessing of forgiveness. Have a look at verse 6 of Romans 4. Likewise, David also speaks of the blessing of the man God credits righteousness to apart from works. How joyful are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. How joyful is the man the Lord will never charge with sin. Man, that is blessing. To have our lawless acts forgiven, to have our sins covered, to have our sin never charged against us, that is blessing. Do you recognize tonight that you are ungodly? And do you acknowledge that you need forgiveness? Then can I urge you tonight to come into this blessing. Trust God who delivered up the Lord Jesus to death for our sins, who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead that we might be counted righteous. If you trust in God in that way, then you can rejoice in the freedom of knowing that you're forgiven, knowing that your sins are covered. This response to God is one of simple faith, trusting that God would act this way towards us. Abraham is our example. He believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness. That's where we get in our first scene from Genesis 15. As you flick back now to Genesis 15, we're going to head into scene two, pick it up from verse seven. And this scene doesn't introduce a new point for us tonight but it reinforces strongly that God is committed to his promises. And we won't work through all the details of it. There's some fun details in there to press into. Happy to talk about those later. But in this second scene, essentially what we're seeing is God acting to reassure Abram. It's an act that I trust sounded strange to your modern ears as you heard it tonight. Uh, Abram takes some animals and chops them in half. I don't know what kind of cleaver he had to be able to do that, but cuts these animals in half and puts them on the side. What's going on here? In this section, in this scene, God is making a covenant with Abram. A covenant is a relationship confirmed by solemn promises. Two people coming together, making promises to one another uh, in a solemn way that's saying, I will keep these promises and this is the result that will happen. A modern example would be Christian marriage. In Christian marriage, that's a covenant. Husband and wife come together and make solemn vows to one another in the presence of witnesses who will hold them accountable to those promises. It's a covenant relationship. Uh, The covenant here between God and Abram, note, this doesn't start their relationship, doesn't create their relationship. Abram already had a relationship with God from back in chapter 12. God had already spelled out by this point the promises that he was making to Abram. There's no new promises here in chapter 15. But the covenant here is confirming that relationship. It's heightening the significance of that relationship. Uh, all the animals that are being cut up, I mean, it's a pretty gruesome scene, but this was just the practice in those days to show the seriousness of the covenant. Uh, what would happen, and you can find this in Jeremiah 34, verse 18. If you want to jot that verse down and look it up later, Jeremiah 34, verse 18 gives us this background. People would cut up these animals and the two parties in the covenant would walk in the middle of the animals, down like an aisle. And they'd say, may it happen to me as it happened to these animals if I don't keep my promises. May I be cut in half if I don't keep these promises. 
incidentally, if you're planning a wedding at the moment, this might be a cool new thing to add into the wedding. There's some animals down the side of the aisles. Uh, it would certainly heighten the significance of the promises for you, wouldn't it? Uh, might make you second guess that moment where you're tempted to commit adultery or to walk out on the marriage. Uh, there's a seriousness that comes when you say, I would rather die than break my promises. And once we grasp the significance of the animals, the story on Je- in Genesis 15, it, it takes on a bit of a twist. Because did you notice who it is that walks through the animals in Genesis 15? Remember in the covenant, both parties meant to walk through and say, I'm going to keep my promises. But in Genesis 15, Abraham doesn't walk through the animals. He's not promising anything in this relationship. He is just the recipient of God's promises. And so verse 17, what passes in between these animals is a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Now throughout the Bible, fire represents God's presence. And so here God is turning up in this form of a fire pot and a torch and God is passing through the animals. God is taking on himself the seriousness of the promises And God is saying to Abram, I'd sooner die than break my promises to you. God would sooner die than break his promises. And this is a God who is committed to his promises to bless Abram. And therefore he's committed to his promises to bless the world through Abram. For us to properly understand this, we need to be clear on what God has promised us. We've already seen from Romans 4 this promised blessing of forgiveness in Jesus. Uh, People find all sorts of other promises from God, and it's important that we make sure we're getting our promises from God on the right grounds. See, a lot of Christians might look to prophecy. They hear a word of God spoken over them and think, man, that's something that God has promised me. Or they get an impression in their heart, a feeling, and they take that as the basis of what God has promised them. Those things can be shaky ground. And likely they might lead to disappointment because it's hard to know if that is something that God has promised you. Remember what Ming taught us a few weeks ago from Luke 24. We shouldn't be disappointed when God doesn't come through on what he hasn't promised. If we make up promises of God and expect God to keep them, we're going to end up disappointed. But when we come to God's word, the Bible, then we're on safe ground in finding the promises of God. The New Testament particularly is full of promises that God has made to us. Uh, Christians in the past used to have little notebooks where they'd write down the promises of God and and look back and remember them and memorize them so that their life was built upon God's promises. Now we have to be careful as we do this as well because uh, there might be promises in the Old Testament, the, the part written before Jesus, that don't apply directly to us. We've got to watch out that the promises we're reading from Scripture are for the new covenant people of God gathered in Jesus. But there's plenty in the New Testament. It would be well worth your while as you read through the New Testament to, to take down those promises and commit them to memory because God will keep them. So I've got up on screen just a, a short list. These are the promises that came to mind for me when I considered what are the promises of God that I keep coming back to time and time again to get through life. This is just some of them. You might like to jot them down. I'm going to read them all out, but I'll work through and just summarize what they promise. There's plenty more, and you might have ones that come to mind for you. But just have a listen to some of the things that God has promised you. In Matthew 28, God says, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. God promises his presence with us each and every day through every moment of life. 
John 11, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will never die. Jesus promises us that death will not be our end. That though death will come, we live beyond that. Romans 1, God promises that the gospel is his power to save people. Romans 8, God promises that there's no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. That in all things, he's working for our good, that we might become like Christ. He promises that nothing, nothing will ever separate us from his love to us in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, God promises us that we will be raised to life after death and be clothed with an imperishable, immortal body. Ephesians 1, God promises us an eternal inheritance. Uh, Philippians 3, God promises us that Jesus will return and will give us glorious bodies like his glorious body that we might live with him forever. In Revelation 21, God promises that he will make a new creation where he'll wipe away all of our tears and there'll be no more pain, no more suffering, and all the injustice and oppression of the world will be dealt with justly. I hope you feel excited as you hear those promises. This, these are promises to build life upon. These are promises to stake your life upon. And there's so many more throughout the New Testament that keep your eye out for them and see what God has promised you in Christ. Because life, life is going to have all those twists and turns. You're not going to be able to see what's up ahead in the future. There'll be things that will come up that will make you doubt God's promises. You might be suffering. It might take longer than you'd like for Jesus to return. The devil might probe you with accusation of your guilt. We might get distracted by the goodness of the world. We might not see as many people being saved as we'd like. All of these twists and turns might cause us to doubt God's promises. But it's in these moments that we need to remember what God has promised us. And remember what we've seen about God in Genesis 15. Our God is a God who is committed to his promises. He would sooner die than break his word. He is not like us who frivolously make promises. His word is his bond. So trust him. Stake your life on his word. He will not let you down. Live as if this world is not your home because God has promised you eternity with him. Proclaim the gospel because God has said that that is his power to save. Live as if death is not your end. Not always trying to jam as much as you can into this life because you know that there's a better life still to come. God is committed to his promises. That's our first couple of scenes through Genesis 15 tonight. God is committed to his promises. As we head into scene three in Genesis 16, we find that God doesn't always keep his promises in the timing that we would love. And this is a, a theme that we'll see come up again and again throughout Genesis. We'll explore it further in later sermons, I'm sure. As we get to scene three, we find Sarai, Abram's wife, feeling the ongoing weight of her barren womb, her infertility. And she's been barren throughout all of her life, not being able to give birth. And perhaps, I don't know, again, the text doesn't say, but perhaps she was coming to terms with that uh, as she grew older, coming to terms with the fact that she'd never have kids. And then God turns up on the scene and promises to Abram, no, you will have offspring. And perhaps, like her husband, she might have been thinking, great, tonight's the night. Let's go, let's have sex together and we'll, we'll conceive. But since then, it's been 10 years, 120 months of anticipating 
and ovulating and still the same empty belly. After being broken down 120 times, Sarah hatches a plan. Have a look at Genesis 16, verse 2. Sarah said to Abram, Since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her I can build a family. Now there's something right in what Sarah says here and something wrong as well. Now Sarah is right in her summary of reality. The Lord has prevented her from bearing children. This is a truth that the scriptures testify to, that it is God who opens and closes the womb. Nothing else, no one else. Life comes from God's hand. And perhaps as you sit here tonight, you might be grieving that the Lord has prevented you from having children. There's many women in the world who would love to have children but don't. For some, it's because they haven't been able to marry. For others, it's because there's something biological that's led to their infertility. If that's you tonight, God knows your sadness. The Bible has many stories of women grieving that they cannot bear children. It, it testifies to the goodness of childbearing and recognizes the sadness of not being able to have that. God invites you through that sadness to trust Him. To trust that though this good of childbearing might not be there for you, He has a, a different and still good plan for you. Infertility is an invitation to trust God. It's not an excuse for sin, which is where Sarah went wrong. So rather than trust God, Sarai sinned. She gave Hagar, her Egyptian maidservant, to Abram, and Hagar conceived. And it seems, as you look at the language there, that Sarah wasn't actually interested in Hagar having a child of her own. Sarah just wanted Hagar to be a surrogate who would bear this child and then give her over to Sarah to be Sarah's child. That seems to be the language that's used. And then when Hagar does conceive, or Hagar starts despising Sarah, perhaps gloating in her pregnancy and ridiculing Sarah for her barrenness. And verse 6, Sarah mistreated Hagar so much that she ran away from her. Sarah started abusing Hagar, used her and then abused her. Sarah was wrong to treat Hagar in this way. This is not okay. If you're grieving any kind of lost hope, whether that be the grief of infertility or the grief of a lost plan for a career, the grief of a lost travel plan or of lost health or of a lost livelihood or of lost relationships, whatever loss you might be grieving, don't let it be an excuse for sin. All of these moments of loss invite us to trust God all the more to learn to be content in whatever situation God has put us. So watch for yourself trying to take God's promises into your own hands. Watch for language that says, and perhaps you say this yourself, perhaps you hear others saying this, language that says, surely God wouldn't want, dot, 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 and then uses that as an excuse for sin. As surely God wouldn't want me to be alone. So I'll date and marry the non-Christian I'll date and marry the same-sex partner. Surely God wouldn't want me to be hungry. So I'll steal from Countdown because they're rich and they won't notice it anyway. Surely God wouldn't want me me to fail. 
and, and waste the money that my parents have saved up for to pay for my education. So I'll just, I'll cheat on this exam. No, no, no. Trust God. Trust his plan. Even if you can't see what it will be. Even if you can't see how it will all work out for good. Take the grief of your lost hope to God and trust him. That's the lesson of scene number three. And and finally, then we get to scene number four. What we learn in this final scene really speaks back into everything we've learned so far. Scene three ended with Hagar, this Egyptian maidservant, used as a surrogate and then abused by Sarah. And so she runs away. And you can understand her running away from abuse, a very fair thing to do. I want you to imagine how isolated she must feel at this point. She's got no one nearby. She's from Egypt. She's been displaced from her land. She's pregnant. She's running away. She's got no finances. She's got no social standing. And she ends up in a wilderness area. She would feel so alone, wouldn't she? And perhaps tonight, that's how you feel. Isolated, alone. You feel like nobody cares, like nobody sees you, nobody hears your tears. Have a look at Genesis 16, verse 7. The angel of the Lord found Hagar by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Hagar might have been invisible to the world, but she is not invisible to God. In verse 10, the angel of the Lord says to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring and there will be too many to count. Does that sound familiar to you? It should sound familiar. This is one of the promises that God has made to Abram. God is making this same promise to Hagar, a humble servant girl. Great blessing is going to come to her, this victim of domestic abuse. And verse 11 continues, the angel continues, you've conceived and you'll have a son and you'll name him Ishmael. For the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. God has heard Hagar's tears. She's not suffering alone, though she might have felt like it. And to remind her of this, God gives her son a name, Ishmael. It means in Hebrew, God hears. So that for the rest of her life, she'll have this reminder that God has heard her. And God has heard her, chapter 16 goes on, because God was watching her. Verse 13, Hagar called the Lord who spoke to her, the God who sees. For she said, in this place have I actually seen the one who sees me. That's why she named the spring, a well of the living one who sees me. Friends, this is our God. God is the living one who sees you, who hears you. I don't know what tears you've been crying lately. I don't know what grief or affliction you've been suffering. Do feel free to come and talk to me about that after tonight. Love to listen, love to support you through that. But know from Genesis 16 tonight that that God already knows it. God has seen it. God is taking a record of your suffering and he will comfort you. He'll bring justice to those who have wronged you. You may be here tonight feeling invisible to the world, but you're not invisible to God. Whoever you are, whatever your story, God sees and God hears. You're not too small as to be below God's radar. 
And so as this feeds back into everything that we've seen tonight, God saw Abram's fear at the uncertainty of the future. God saw Sarah grieve in her barrenness. God saw Hagar's abuse and heard her tears. And we can know that God sees you as you fear the future, as you grieve lost hopes, as you suffer use and abuse. God sees you, God hears you, and God is committed to his promises to bless you. The Lord Jesus will return, and on that day, all of his promises will be fulfilled. For those who trust in God, that'll be a day of eternal blessing. We're going to share in infinite joy and peace and glory and comfort, all of which we don't deserve, but all of which are given to us as our sins are forgiven by the God who declares the ungodly to be righteous. Now, already all of God's promises have been confirmed in Jesus who died and rose to new life. As God gave us his spirit, the deposit that guarantees our future inheritance. So trust God. Stake your life on his promises. And as we together anticipate the fullness of God's blessing to come, let's enjoy now the blessing of God's presence with us through the trials, through the suffering, through the uncertainty, through all the twists and turns of life. The living God sees you and hears you and is committed to his promises to bless you. Let me pray and thank him now. Father, we thank you that you see us, that you hear us, that you care. Thank you that you are committed to your promises and that though we are ungodly, though we have committed much sin, You promise to forgive us, to wipe that all away and not count it against us. Oh, Father, we can never repay you for that. And we're sorry for the times we try. We're sorry for the times that we try to earn our right standing with you, thinking that you owe us anything. Please forgive us for that as well. Father, thank you that in your book you have a record of all of our tears, that you know them, that you know our pain, And thank you that one day you will bring all of that to an end. You'll bring justice and comfort and peace. Father, help us to trust that promise, to trust all of your promises. Help us to trust you. And so to live in this world as if this is not our home, to live as if death is not our end, but to give our lives to see you made as famous as you deserve to be in Auckland, across this country and across this globe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.